<laughs> All right. The tug of war. All right. Um, so um, we are we are uh, concluding our conversation about um, fear. Uh, we've been we've been looking at the the subject of fear and what resources our faith uh, offers us as we face a world that is fearful from time to time, um, and. And the reason we've been doing that is, is because, in particular, our thoughts have been focused over the last 20 months by this pandemic. There are obviously other things we can be afraid of, too. But what we've been seeing as we've been in this conversation is that whatever they are, we know two things. Two things are that, first of all, God commands us not to be afraid. Not, not, not a recommendation, not good advice, not something you might want to consider. This is actually a command from God. He says over and over again throughout the scriptures, God tells his people, do not be afraid. He says, have courage. He says, he says, um, take heart. He says, don't be afraid over and over and over again. That's a command from God. And I don't keep it. I don't keep it even though I live on this side of Jesus' earthly ministry, his life and his death and his resurrection, and I know that Jesus has conquered whatever it is that I might be afraid of, that whatever I'm afraid of, um, Jesus has conquered. And so what I want to do today as we conclude this conversation is look at, um, first I, I want to look at two things that, that we haven't covered that, you know, there's an infinite number of things we haven't covered, but I'll look at those in a minute. But the, the other thing I want to do is I want to look at what do we do when we are afraid. If if Jesus has conquered the sources of our fear, and if God commands us not to be afraid, what do we do if we find that we actually are afraid nevertheless? What do we do in the storm? And so um, that's what I want to look at today. Um, maybe you saw this thing in the news. It said that the Health and Human Services um, vaccination ads use a new tactic to increase COVID-19 vaccination rates. Fear. And I thought, well, good luck with that. It's kind of a drop in the bucket at this point. You know, it's it's spitting into the ocean. So I think we are awash in fear. And if there's anybody who was kind of on the verge, you know, I'm thinking about COVID, and, you know, the past 20 months I've been pretty pretty relaxed about it, but, oh, now I'm going to be afraid? It's like, okay, well, they should be, you know, seen by someone, and not necessarily a, a vaccination specialist. Um, there's just so many things to be afraid of. And so I want to give just two more examples. These would be the kinds of things, if this series went on forever, we could talk about all kinds of things. But I think two are very, very um, uh, often people express concerns. Um, so we are going to look at what, what to be afraid of. And the first one is is to be uh, without, to be to be impoverished, to to not have enough of, of what we need to live. This is something that people are often concerned about. Um, maybe you've been in that place. I imagine you might have seen the jobs report that came out. They were hoping for 500,000 jobs, and they got 200,000. So I imagine there's a lot of people who are sitting around tables and going, um, how are we going to pay the rent? How are we going to you know pay the bills? And so um, I imagine there's a lot of people who are in that Situation, And Jesus says, don't worry. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. He says, consider the ravens. God feeds them. And more than that, the Apostle Paul tells us that's true, that, that he has actually experienced what, what Jesus was talking about. He says, he says, I know the experience of being in need and having more than enough. And I have learned the secret to being content in every circumstance, whether full or hungry. 
And whether having plenty or being poor. He says Jesus wasn't kidding. That when he says consider the ravens, he means God will take care of you. And he knows sometimes he cares for us by giving us more than we need. And sometimes he cares for us even though we don't have what we think we need. And for a lot of us, we're fortunate enough that for us to get there, we have to go through something else. For us to get to a place of poverty, we've got to go through loss. And so I think people are reasonably afraid of loss, a loss of their material possessions or loss of people, loss of, of people through death or from uh, the ending of a relationship. There's, there's any kind of loss we might experience. And again, Jesus teaches us that we don't have to be afraid of that either. In fact, he makes a, a really kind of amazing promise. He says, everybody who has, who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or farms, no matter what you've lost, because of my name, will receive a hundred times more. Oh, and by the way, will receive, uh, will inherit eternal life. So Jesus is at least suggesting that this isn't something that will happen when you get to heaven. Just gut it out for the next, you know, 20 or 70 years and he'll take care of you. Then he's at least suggesting that you will begin to receive that promise in this life. You will receive more. So there's all kinds of things we can be afraid of. Loss, poverty, disease, sickness. We've, we've looked at some of these. So what do we do? When we know as Christians, as people of faith, we don't have to be afraid and we find, nevertheless, I'm afraid. What, what, what do we do? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And the first thing is we praise God. And by, by that, I, you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for us to misunderstand what God, um, uh, why, why we would praise God. Um, I think that there's this idea that, you know, I need something from God, so I better butter him up, you know, because, you know, I have to kind of put the, the flower, you know, I, you know, he won't notice that I've got a request coming if I start with some flowers, right? So, so I think that's this kind of uh, a broken image we have of praise, but, but that's not what, what praise is really about. If, if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son, um, is sitting in his pig pen. He has left home. He has, he has lost everything in the faraway country. And he's sitting in the pig pen, and the first thing he, he, the first place where his, his eyes are opened, he says, my dad's field hands have it better than this. The first thing is to say, I know somebody whose situation, who, who, who routinely provides for people better than I've been provided for here. It's to focus your own thinking on the one who can solve your problems. You know, if you think about God, you know, our images of God are so small. If we say, you know, I've got a problem. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. So what do I do? Well, God is the one who maintains the force of gravity that binds galaxies together. Is it going to be a real problem for him to pay my electric bill? Really? So praising God is something we can do to focus our own thoughts And so we praise God for his power and for his promises. Now, I said that this, this is something useful for us to focus on. It, it's, it's as much for us as it is for anybody else. It's not about God needing his ego to be stroked. 
But I think it does bring God joy. I think it does bring God joy the same way when a when a parent sees their child learning to speak or or learning to stand and, and walk, all the things that bring a, a, a parent joy. God experiences us when He sees that we have looked at the world and we've seen it's full of problems, and to recognize how to navigate them by turning to Him. That would bring any parent joy. So we praise the power and promises of God. We see this throughout the. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the psalmist says, you are the God who works wonders. You have demonstrated strength among all peoples. With your mighty arm, you have redeemed your people. He's reflecting on his own experience or the experience that is celebrated in the stories of his people. He says, this is, this is what God does. God is powerful. There hasn't been a problem yet that God hasn't been able to overcome. And the prophet Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem. There, there's, uh, if, if you're familiar with that story, uh, Jerusalem is is surrounded by enemies, and and Jeremiah uh, tells them, "Don't be afraid of them." You know that that God rules in the great affairs of of humanity. Don't be afraid of them because they can't do harm or good. And then he turns to God and he says, "Lord, no one is like you. You are great, and great is your mighty name." And, you know, Jeremiah was not exactly an optimist. He was not, you know, a Pollyanna going around telling, oh, it'll turn out okay. Jeremiah, if Jeremiah is saying God can handle this, that's, <laughs> then everybody could see it. The Deuteronomist, the, the writer of Deuteronomy says, um, as Moses is dying, um, he, he delivers this speech. He says, don't be afraid and don't be scared by your enemies. Because the Lord your God is the one who marches with you. I'm dying. I'm not going into the Holy Land. Right? And you're saying, oh, what are we going to do without him? You know, well, well the reality is, um, Moses died, but somebody got his job. And Moses is saying, you don't have to worry. Because it's God who's marching along with you. God is with you in this. So he begins by saying, God is the one who rescued you from Egypt. And then he makes a promise. He says, he, God, won't let you down and he won't abandon you. So we praise God not only for his power, but the promises that God has made. We see this in the, in the Hebrew scriptures as well. The, the psalmist brings that up in conversation with God. He says, remember your promise to your servant for which you made me wait. My comfort during my suffering is this. Your word gives me new life. That I'm suffering right now, but a word from you, as I, as I meditate on your name, speak a word to me so that I can have new life in the midst of this suffering. And on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a benefit that, that they didn't have because we can see it as accomplished fact. We can see the promises of God have already been fulfilled in Christ. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, he says, in him, it is always yes. All of God's promises have their yes in Christ. That Christ has already achieved the thing that needs to be achieved. And we may not see it, the, the writer Tom Holland says that what Christ did is like dropping a depth bomb, a uh, death bomb, uh, what are they called? Depth charge, 
a depth charge into the water. And it goes down, and then it goes off, and nobody sees it for a minute. And then everybody sees it. He says that that is going on right now, that, that the world, if you get far enough away from that event, aren't aware of what God is doing. But it is, it is uh, spreading out. The, the waves of change in this world are spreading out from that explosion that has gone on deep beneath the surface. So in him, these promises have already been fulfilled. And so we are experiencing those waves as they come across the surface up here in the world. So the first thing we do is we praise God. We praise God so that we can orient ourselves and understand where our help will come from. We can look to the hills and remember that is where our help comes from. The second thing we can do is pray. And you can pray. You know, there's there's the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, that's an old saying. Apparently, uh, there are atheists in foxholes, that, um, that there have been lawsuits to establish this fact. And, and so there's no atheists, uh, there, there are apparently atheists in foxholes. But let me just tell you, if you are an atheist, you're allowed to pray in your foxhole. God is not going to say, nope, you're an atheist. I don't accept prayers from atheists. God will accept your prayers wherever you are. But you may not know what to pray for. A lot of the problems we have today are so perplexing that it's like, I don't even know what I should pray for. And so I'm going to give you a tip. I'm not going to ever say that I can guarantee a prayer will be answered because you'll hear that as me telling you that it will be granted. (laughs) And I don't want to say that. But I I can tell you a prayer that will definitely be answered. And that is for God to be merciful. Pray for God to be merciful. And the reason that that will be granted, or that will be answered, is because you're asking God to be God. You're asking God to, to, to be like who He is in His, in the deepest part of His character. God is a God of mercy. God tells Moses, and, and uh, um, as the, as the people of God are, are leaving the promised land, God tells to Moses, He says, I will be kind to whoever I wish to, to be kind. And I will have compassion to whomever I wish to be compassionate. He says, you can't stop me. Nothing can stop me. Pharaoh can't stop me. And the people of the land you're going into can't stop me. I will be merciful to anybody I please. Nobody can stop me from being merciful. And you know what? You can't. There's nothing you can do. You can be that atheist in the foxhole. And you can't do anything that will prevent God from being kind to you. God can be kind to whoever he wants. So the psalmist says, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me because I have taken refuge in you. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until destruction passes by. But again, we see things more clearly on this side of Jesus. That the psalmist could could say, this has been the experience of my people. That that we rehearse these stories in our festivals. And maybe he's experienced it personally. But he's rehearsing that story. But Mary gives us a different perspective. When the angel comes to her and says says that she has been... um, uh, 
she, she has found favor with God and she will bring the, the Savior into the world. She says, the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. Mary is saying, what we have always uh, celebrated and rehearsed and looked for has now arrived in Jesus Christ. And we see this in the letter of the Apostle Peter. He says, on account of his vast mercy, he has given us new birth, that we have been born in Christ. We have new birth. You have been born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, if you pray for God to be merciful, you are aligning yourselves with God's character. And, by the way, it's what you need, right? That's the reason you're afraid. God, be merciful to me. So it works perfectly. Now, the third thing you can do is optional. You can thank God. This is optional. God did not make an investment in you. God did not say, all right, but I'm going to come back later like a bill collector and you know demand something from you. God has done this because he will be merciful to whoever he wants to be merciful to. But you don't have to respond with gratitude. If you don't, you're an ingrate. But this is optional. So, you know, whatever else I say is something you have the choice to do or not do. You can thank God. So how do you thank God? God has, you know, if if you follow that depth charge metaphor, God has already answered your prayer. God has already been merciful to you. And you're just waiting to see when the wave arrives, how's that actually going to play out in your life? But it's already happened. So how do you thank God for that? How how can you thank God? Well, the answer is we thank God by learning from Jesus. Jesus is speaking to some people in the in the um, uh, gospel account of Matthew, and he says he Jesus cites uh, the prophet Isaiah. He says, "Hypocrites, Isaiah knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me." So if you're just thinking, you know, I need to, you know, say it with flowers, I need to send him some candy, I need to, I need to, to, um, you know, go to church every week until I get bored going to church or whatever it is. If you're wondering, what, what do I do to, to be properly grateful? Like when I was a kid, I had to write a letter to my grandmother, you know, thank you for the birthday, right? If you're just wondering, what do I do? How do I thank God? He tells us the answer. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And remember, this is optional. This is something you can do or not do. But Jesus says, this is the way you thank me. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he explains further. He says, just as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. This is how everyone will know you are my disciple when you love one another. He says, people will judge me by you. I have fulfilled the law that that I came to do what you could not do. I have shown you mercy, and I have now done that. And so I'm going to give you a whole new set of commandments. Okay, get your pen. But it's a lot shorter, because instead of having 613 commandments, I'm going to give you one commandment. Love each other. This is how everyone will know you are my disciple, when you love each other. And this is the most countercultural thing we can we can be part of. We are invited into this act of 
rebellion against the way the world works. In fact, Jesus tells us, you know, the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them. And their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. I've come to model mercy and love. And I'm inviting you to be like me. And if we do that, it will have a cost. If we take up that model of behavior, if we make Christ our template, it's going to cost us. The Apostle Paul, already by 55 AD, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth where there, within the church, people who knew each other in church and worshiped together are taking each other to court, to a secular court, and saying, you know, he owes me or whatever. And Paul says, the fact that you have lawsuits against each other means you've already lost your case. Why not be wronged instead? Why not let them cheat you? Are you going to show mercy? Or are you going to get what's right? Are you going to love? Or are you going to insist on justice? This is countercultural, but it is the new covenant. This is what Jesus told us that he came to establish. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, Jesus has received a superior priestly service just as he enacted a better covenant that is enacted with better promises. If the first covenant had been without fault, it wouldn't have made sense to expect a second. It says, the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ and there is a new covenant in town. Now, why is the old covenant still there? Why do we talk about the old covenant? Why do we have the Old Testament in our Bible? Because it points to Jesus. And more than that, it shows us what God was thinking about. The fact that we can't do it doesn't mean it was a bad idea. He's saying that the first one was not uh, without fault. The fault was that you couldn't do it. it there wasn't anything wrong with the, the covenant. And so actually, I'm going to put in a little plug here. We're going to spend the next several weeks looking at some of the some of that Iron Age wisdom. Because I think we could use some Iron Age wisdom in the 21st century. We're going to look at the book of Leviticus. And <laughs> you're on record. You know it. So I expect you here for all those lessons. So, <laughs> so um, the 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 Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the 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 law we see there is not something that binds us. Our response is gratitude. It is optional, but it will show us what God is thinking. It'll show us what God is like. And I need to say that because because I have to say something that I'd rather not say. I was at denominational meetings the last couple of days, and I heard over and over again about churches that have vaccine mandates. And that has really disappointed me. And I want to explain why. Because Jesus is telling us the way we change people is not by establishing a covenant, not by saying, do this and we're okay, but by saying, I'm going to love you no matter what you do, 
I will be merciful to those to whom I wish to be merciful. And you can't stop me. Now, I might be wrong, right? There's a lot of churches that were talking about their vaccine mandates. Our church has strongly encouraged people to be vaccinated. The reality is, you have a date with COVID. There are multiple animal reservoirs. You could vaccinate every single person on this planet. And the virus will still be with us. You have a date with COVID. And if you are in a high-risk group, and I'm not seeing many people here who aren't, then the smart thing to do is to avail yourself of whatever whatever protection God has provided. But I don't want to be part of a two-tier church. The Apostle James talks about a situation in the early church where somebody comes in and he's wearing rags and he's told, go stand in the back. Somebody else comes in wearing nice clothes and a fine ring and he says, please come sit up front. I don't think Christians can be part of that. Well, Christians routinely are part of that kind of system. Yesterday, the Presbytery of Yukon, they didn't dissolve. They they suspended. What was the word for anchor prayers? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, um, so I forget the terminology. They did not dissolve. The the anchor anchor Presbyterian Church downtown um, is still is still. Um, uh, Still chartered, but it but it has been um, it has been discontinued for the time being. It's a it's a casualty of COVID. And one of the things I was listening to several people who've been involved with that church were talking about their their particular focus. They're right in the park strip, and one of their particular focuses was homeless people. And they talked about how they have maintained that. And it has been, it has been something that has kept the church from growing. That it has always been in a very marginal situation because people have said and they've complained about the smell. And it's easy for me to say, right? Well, I'm not on the park strip. I don't have many homeless people coming into this church and smelling up the place. But Jesus told us what the least, what we did for the least of those we do to him. And so it breaks my heart that Christians struggle with this. We were told Count the cost. Paul said, why not be cheated? And I know you've all seen the news. I'm not talking about the city. That's the kingdom of the world. That's the surface. I'm not telling the city what to do. But I'm saying the church is the kingdom of God. And we've been invited 
to trust God as an expression of our thanks, knowing it will cost us. God has given us the grace of being able to put our programs online. If somebody is feeling sick, or if somebody is refusing to take the precautions that 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 they believe in their heart would protect them and protect others, they can watch online. But I cannot I cannot support the idea of a church mandating that behavior. I think as Christians, our job is to model it and to know it will cost us. We live in a world with trouble. And if it wasn't COVID, it would be something else. Think about the last five years of your life. I'm guessing it wasn't pain-free and problem-free until March of 2020. Jesus said there will be problems in this world. But he said that the person who hears his word and builds his house on it will withstand the storms. So when you are fearful, pray for God to be merciful. Praise God for his power and his promises. And thank God by learning from Jesus. Let's pray. Loving God, help us to be, as we struggle, to be the the kind of church Jesus is calling us to be. Give our members and our leaders wisdom as they discern the path you are calling us to. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.